Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today's episode on Hollywood makeup artist Caroline took me back to my childhood ballet days. Oh? Yes. Because, I mean, obviously I was like 10, 11, 12 years old, and I did not wear full makeup, or any makeup for that matter, except for ballet performances. Mm-hmm. I was a ballerina, and I distinctly remember uh, my mom taking me to the drugstore to go buy Max Factor pancake, mm-hmm. because... I was on the stage, you know, stage makeup obviously is, is well, not always obviously, is a bit more dramatic than everyday makeup. And I can still remember the smell of that thick, pale pancake being applied to my face. And I felt like a star. <laughs> I'll admit it. I was ready for my close-up. <laughs> Well, not too close up if you were wearing like super thick pancake makeup. Oh, no. Closer the better. <laughs> I don't mind. Um, so this this episode was, was really fun to learn about the roots of, of my my childhood stage makeup. Yeah, I am. Um, when I was in elementary school, every year, each grade would put on it was called the spring play and each grade participated first through fifth. And each class would put on a different, like, two-song routine, mm. um, singing and dancing and costumes and the whole nine yards. It was traumatic. Uh, but one thing I remember so clearly was that bef- every year when this happened, my mother would put my hair in hot rollers, plastic hot rollers that had been around since approximately 1895. Uh, sorry, Mom. And... What went along with that was, of course, putting on lots of makeup so that you could definitely see my star features. You got to make those cheeks pop. That's right. And also lips and eyes. I can't tell you like how freakish I looked when you see pictures of me like off the stage before or after the performance. I look terrifying because I've got this. My hair is just naturally straight and fine. And I've got this like big, curly, frizzy hair. Uh all over the place, and these bright red lips and this pale, ghostly white skin. (laughs) I look like like the ghost of stage performers past, but like the chubby 10-year-old version. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if it makes you feel any better, I I think I was 10 when the photo was taken for, I'm sure it was our spring recital as well, because I was a silver bell and (laughs) was almost busting out of my leotard. My mom had to alter it bigger for me. I was, in my grandfather's words, a husky child. <laughs> and there's this photo of me in all of my tutu and adult makeup regalia in my family's backyard. And I, I look, I just look bizarre. It yeah. just is not, it looks very unnatural. Yeah, like, I imagine, I know for sure mine, and I imagine yours. Like, these are the reasons that people write horror movies around children. And like, children in makeup. And, and sta- stage children. Because <laughs> you're horrifying. <laughs> Here come all these children dressed as lions and other jungle creatures. It's horrifying. Well, unfortunately, we have to reel this conversation into Hollywood. Although, really, can we just... 
talk about child stage performances so, for the rest of the podcast. So dramatic. Um, but today, uh, we, we will not, listeners, just be talking about uh, um, times when Caroline and I were in the spotlight, <laughs> literally. Um, but we're going to focus on production makeup artists, not so much celebrity or fashion makeup artists, not having like the Bobby Brown kind of conversation, but really looking at the development of makeup artistry in Hollywood uh, because a makeup Mm -hmm. stuff. I never told you we talk about makeup related things all the time. And of course, Hollywood makeup, it widely influenced and continues to influence beauty trends and women's body image off screen. But this also, when we look specifically at early Hollywood, is a rare stuff I've never told you. History that is an emphasis on his and no history. Does that make any sense whatsoever? Yeah, the ladies are missing. Ain't no ladies. And and it's not that like people just left them out of the history. Although it's entirely possible that they have been left out, that women makeup artists have been left out of the narrative. That would not shock me in the least. But when you go back and look at the timeline of the development of first stage and then on-screen makeup, it's all guys. It's all Guys, and and it makes sense the more you read about it and, and consider what they were having to do. It does make sense that it was guys because, A, professionalization, mm-hmm. and especially professionalization happening in the early 20th century, which was almost exclusively a male pursuit, and also how there were very technical aspects of it. So a little bit of background to kick things off. So Hollywood actors first began wearing makeup, not so much to look fabulous on screen, but rather to not look horrifying on screen. Yeah, to not look like Kristen and me when we were children. Yes. That's why they wore makeup. And this, by the way, is coming from a fantastic profile on Max Factor in Cabinet Magazine. The link will be over in the podcast link on stuff I've never told you dot com and I highly recommend you read it. Yeah, but Max Factor the human being, not just Kristen's pancake makeup that she wore to ballet. Yeah, he was a real Max. He was a real <laughs> I'm a real Max. And I do remember thinking as a kid, who is this Max guy? I just never thought it was a person. Max Factor. It just sounds like Maybelline. It was Maybelline. Maybelline. Maybe um, he's born with it. Maybe he's Max Factor. Yeah. Well, so if we're talking about why people look ghoulish, <laughs> I don't want to leave you hanging with that information. Um, Get back to the ghouls. The ghouls and the technology. So bo- both orthochromatic and panchromatic film made dark colors darker and light colors lighter, which totally made you look like a freak. And this, this by the way, is the earliest film being used. Um, it really gave people this almost ghostly appearance. So like anytime you had a slight blemish or a wrinkle or anything, it would just be totally blown up and blown out into something scary looking on, on, uh, on camera. But back then there was no Max Factor pancake. There was no under eye concealer. Oh God. The, the makeup options. In, you know, the, the 1910s were very limited to things like commercial grease paint or if you wanted to get DIY about it, mixtures of lard, talc and pigment that actors would apply before coming on set. So Hollywood's first stars 
would have to do their own hair and makeup a lot of times. Yeah, make yourself look beautiful or you know, just not horrifying. Um, and this is where I get super squicked out because I have skin that breaks out super easily. Like, oh, I'm going to try a new moisturizer, acne. Oh, I'm going to try a new concealer, more acne. Um, but so in lieu of makeup primer... These actors and actresses would use things like petroleum jelly, vegetable shortening, or cold cream to help their makeup set. And I'm just like shuddering. That just sounds so awful. And like I would never be able to get it off. And that's underneath a thick grease paint, an inflexible thick grease paint. Now, in order to achieve a little bit of skin tone, they might add some brick dust or mm-hmm. paprika. I mean, Delicious. the thing is, like, makeup back then was food. real scrappy. It was just food. It was food. <laughs> you go to dinner and get a makeover all in one. Um, they would also, I love this, they might dust flour on their faces to diminish shine. And you want some dimples, gals? Just use your lipstick. But the thing was, like, this stuff was so thick, and uh, the film could potentially make you look so creepy uh, that if you made a certain facial expression, it might crack. But the cracks would show up on film like you were you were literally breaking apart and melting. Like, ah, every movie was a monster movie. But that also explains why... People in, say, like Silent Era and the early talkies films look so different than people on film today. It wasn't because, you know, 80, 80 years ago, hi, it's 2000, <laughs> um, humans had vastly different faces, but because the makeup was literally being just like slathered on. And by makeup, I mean makeup in quotes, because Caroline, Max Factor hadn't even invented the term makeup yet. I know. I love this. All of this background information. Max Factor himself was a fascinating guy with sort of a crazy story. He was hired as a personal cosmetician to members of Tsar Nicholas II's court. But he must have been like some crazy great cosmetics guy and or, you know, Nicholas was like nutty because Max Factor's activity. I'm just going to keep calling him Max Factor, not Max. Yeah. I mean, Max just seems too casual. I know. Well, it was closely monitored and restricted, which made it super tough for him because, dude, he had a secret family. Yeah. He was able to start his secret family while he was still being monitored by Tsar Nicholas. I mean, he like couldn't leave court without... A chaperone. I'm just going to pop into this bookstore slash make babies. Yeah, he had three kids yeah. secretly. Max Factor. What? Are you, how? Quickies. But then this was, I love this part of his bio. So in 1904, he's like, okay, this is ridiculous. I have a secret family that I really would like to live with, but I'm in the court of the czar who just doesn't want to let me leave. What am I going to do? What am I really good at? Oh, yeah. Makeup. Makeup is a tool of deception, as every man knows. <laughs> so he uses his makeup skills. He does his face with flour and paprika. No, I'm sure he did something far more. And then he made cookies. Yeah. <laughs> and then he uses makeup skills to fake an illness. So he made himself up to look super sick, sick enough to get sent to a sanitarium. But 
He actually did not go to a sanitarium, listeners. He scooped up his wife and three kids and set sail for America, where everything was instantly great, right? (laughs) And where he established beauty standards. The end. The end. No, he had a tough go of it when he first got to the U.S. because he was obviously very successful, knew what he was going to do, get into cosmetics. But when he uh, started setting things up with a business partner... The business partner stole his money. Then his secret wife, who was no longer secret, unexpectedly died. And then he got a new wife. And then she had a mental breakdown and started beating him in public. Well, this was after their baby was born. So, like, he had a baby with the new wife. She probably was suffering from some postpartum. She ends up abusing him. He divorces her. And then he's like, okay, my brother and I will go into business. It'll be fine. His brother would come over. Well, the brother then opens up a cosmetic shop like two doors down. Yeah, what a jerk. Becomes a competitor. Well, and then becomes a gangster, literally. Oh. So, I know, I kind of want to know about gangsters. about that, Mr. Factor. Um, but then finally, he he's on his fourth wife. He's got five kids. And he's like, let's go to Hollyweird. <laughs> so, in 1909... He opens up his cosmetics store, which is also essentially a cosmetics lab at the time. He wasn't like opening up a Sephora or something because (laughs) (laughs) stuff didn't exist. And he was very much a scientist about it. And with that, he began unwittingly the process of changing an entire industry because in 1914, he started carrying a flexible grease paint that he developed that wouldn't crack when those actors made their overly dramatic expressions on screen. Yeah, so here's a guy who is not only, like, he's had a kooky life so far already, and he's an incredible technological innovator. He's creating things, then he's becoming the artist and applying those things to the actors themselves, because they were like, finally, I don't have to do it. But also, everybody was so excited, like, oh, you mean I can have a slight facial expression and not have my pancake flour paprika combination crack and fall off? Oh, but remember, we haven't gone to pancake yet. God, I know. I'm just so excited. Oh, well, also, all of this stuff is just food-based. That's too. true. This- They're just slapping actual pancakes <laughs> on their face. <laughs> so delicious. Poking out little nose holes. <laughs> um, but Factor was a legit innovator. He made, for instance... The first made-for-film Sweat, Tears, and Blood, delish. He even invented a pie topping that, as opposed to dairy cream, didn't get sour and curdled after a while, but also stuck to the face longer. So thank you, Max Factor, for like all of the Three Stooges movies. But wait a second. So still, though... We're, we're still using We're food. still in food. We're still in food. I like that he's like, I'll create something different that's not food. But he's first, like, dessert. <laughs> <laughs> I like to imagine, I don't know if you watched House, but like in every episode of House, there was always a moment where like a colleague was talking and House would get this look on his face like, oh, I figured it out. And he'd run away to go solve the, the case. And I imagine that the same thing happened with Max Factor. Like he was eating a pie one night and he's like, oh, I know what to do. Some whipped cream stuck on his nose, and he was like, wait a moment. Um, but he also invented lip gloss, waterproof mascara, and 
under eye concealer. Can can we insert like a, a sound clip of just like wild applause after under eye concealer? I know, I know. <laughs> and in addition to this, he sold eyeshadow and eyebrow pencils to non-actors for the first time because remember that as Max Factor was getting started, makeup was still okay for the stage. But it was largely like if you weren't a woman on the stage and you were wearing makeup, then you were probably a prostitute. And like literally, this is we're not like making a, an old ye old timey judgment. That was like what people thought. But it's it's not to say, though, that Edwardian era women were not completely obsessed with cosmetics, but it was more about having a clean look. And trying to get away with, um, you know, kind of like the natural look today. Obviously, they wouldn't be wearing, you know, the same kinds of layers of foundation and doing contouring and all of that stuff that we would be doing today. But they were still applying lots of things to their facial skin and still trying to achieve beauty. But obvious makeup in the sense of wearing eyeshadow and lipstick and blush would have been associated with ladies of the evening. And I don't know if it's at this point, like at the very dawn of civilians using his makeup or if it's a little bit later in the process. But there were even in some of the sources we read, there were even some complaints that we still hear today from men who were like, I hate to kiss lips with lipstick on them. I want the clean, pure kiss. Well, buddy, stop judging and maybe you'll get one. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And I bet you, fella back then, you were smoking a cigarillo <laughs> with a pencil thin mustache. Yes. <laughs> Basically, every man in the Edwardian era was a villain in like a train heist movie. Yes. Yes. Um, but one thing, too, to keep in mind for a little later in our conversation is how Factor invented airbrushing makeup, which was often originally used for white actors playing non-white characters. But it also came in handy during World War II when women had to give up their nylons, their stockings, and they would use the same makeup to make it appear that they were wearing stockings. So a non-racist use. Yeah. It. Take one, take with one hand or give, what? No. The Lord giveth and taketh away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Amen. Um, so yeah, so uh, evening out there. But some of the iconic faces that Max Factor kind of literally created were Joan Crawford's, Judy Garland's, Jean Harlow's, and Betty Davis. So, I mean, these were, these were looks that so many women at the time, and, and even still today, because yeah, Joan Crawford is a babe, uh, are still mimicking. But what's interesting is that so many of his makeup innovations came out of necessity. For instance, the Rosebud and Cupid's Bow uh, lipstick designs or styles, which were popularized by Clara Bow, they were all strategies to prevent the lipstick from running because we didn't have that like, stay put for 17 hours even through your sad salad kind of, of lipstick. It was all, It all started to run at one point or another, so he would paint it in a very specific way so that it wouldn't get all over your face. And, and it wasn't just makeup either. He was also into hair dye innovation and really helped make blondes all of the rage. And this had to do with a shift in film technology as well, because you have a movement toward a less harsh incandescent lighting on set. And then in the late 20s, the adoption of panchromatic film. 
And so, because it would play so well off of those elements, Factor made a new platinum blonde dye for Jean Harlow that was such a sensation that her 1931 comedy title was changed from the original Gallagher, all the watermelon smashing, (laughs) to just platinum blonde. Or like, just make it all about the hair. Fewer watermelons. Yeah, and um, as this Cabinet Magazine profile pointed out, in the process of creating Greta Garbo's signature look, women around the U.S. just copied it. I mean, he, Max Factor essentially set the standard for what women in the late or even mid 20s and 30s were tried to look like. Which is fascinating. Fascinating. He's such a genius. Well, I don't know. Maybe if you hate makeup, you hate Max Factor. I don't know. But I think he's such a genius with the keeping up his innovations with the technology of the day of of so, I don't want to say effortlessly because I'm sure he put a ton of effort into it, but it's just so seamlessly following the technological innovations with his products. And in the process, he ended up setting beauty standards for women in the United States. I have a feeling that when he was like under lock and key in Tsar Nicholas's court, you had no idea what what an impact he would soon have but for all of his innovation and work and and how i mean how much of an icon he was within hollywood even at that time like everyone knew who max factor was he even set up you know this gorgeous um studio or i should say like beauty salon um right in hollywood that people would go to as well but he didn't get a screen credit for his work until 1938 with the technicolor production which yes i did watch as a child goldwyn follies what's it about i mean is it about so the follies were essentially like the stage shows huh. so lots of singing and dancing and glitzy costumes and just technicolor bedazzlement and we've been giving all of this time and attention to Max Factor, which he absolutely deserves because he's an amazing individual. But simultaneously, we basically have the rise of a makeup family dynasty. Yeah. So the Westmore boys, and there were so many of them. So many. R- really cornered this market. A- and I had never heard of the Westmore boys. Obviously, we've heard of Max Factor because it's a household cosmetic name. Um, but the Westmore boys weren't so much about creating lines of cosmetics for women off screen like Factor eventually got into, but really getting into Hollywood. And similar to Max Factor, who was a Polish immigrant, George Westmore emigrated from England and opened a wig and hat store in Hollywood. And in the 1910s, he began trading Hollywood prostitutes hairstyling for their makeup tips. Which is so fantastic. I know. So interesting. So, like, here's a group of people that society dismisses and you're you're gross and you're unacceptable and you you're harlots for all of that makeup you wear. But this is where the leader of this makeup dynasty gets his makeup ideas. And he really entrenches himself into the Hollywood system. So in 1917, old Georgie Boy founds the first movie makeup department at Selig Studios. And he has six sons. And at one point, they were just all working at all of, you know, individually 
at different major studios. So you have Monty Westmore, who's working for David O. Selznick, big deal. You have Earn, who is at 20th Century Fox. Percy, who is at Warner Brothers. Wally's at Paramount. Frank also is at Paramount for a while. And then you have Bud, who's at Universal. And as I was reading about all of these Westmore boys, I was like, is, it, is that a monopoly? So an unlikely story in today's... 20th century gendered makeup landscape to think of a father grooming his six sons in the makeup artistry business. Yeah. And I mean, there's there's a lot of different social factors that work there because you've got the like you said, the professionalization issue, but also just the idea that kind of makeup at this time was still considered sort of a special effect, especially to the degree that makeup artists for film were trying to slather it on people's faces to cover up imperfections and make them appear different or of even of a different race altogether, a different ethnicity. Um, And so that's why I kept looking like, where are the women? Why are there all these dudes? And I, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that this was a professional special effects realm. Well, because it's also distinct from beauty salon work, even though the Westmores did open a beauty salon in Hollywood. Um, but that would be more of a feminized profession and also just straight up makeup entrepreneurialism where you do have some major women at this time beginning to emerge, like selling essentially women their problem areas. Um, but this is so specific to Hollywood and this very particular industry need, which was very much tied up, too, with film technology. And it was a demand produced, honestly, like by the rapidly developing camera and film tech. But one more name, though, that we need to mention is yet another guy. We have a dude named uh, William J. Tuttle, who was establishing himself a, a little bit later after Westmore and Factor were big names. He came along and established himself as one of Hollywood's most successful makeup artists who mostly worked at MGM. And I wanted to mention him just as an example of how you would at this point get into the job. Yeah, so he landed in Studio City through taking art classes at the University of Southern California and through getting an apprenticeship with fellow makeup artist Jack Dawn at 20th Century Pictures. So once he did land at MGM, the Tuttle recalled studio chief Louis B. Mayer indicating that all women should appear beautiful and all men should be handsome. And that's a, a good thing to remember, too, is that these guys were... Definitely shaping the beauty standards of ladies on screen, but also handsomeness standards. Like Max Factor worked with uh, Rudolph Valentino, who was one of the earliest uh, Hollywood heartthrobs on creating his, quote unquote, dark Latin lover look. Yeah. Um, Which we'll get into the whole uh, dark Latin lover aspect in just a minute. Um, But back to Tuttle. He also got into making and selling his own makeup. And in 1975, he launched Custom Color Cosmetics, which became the industry standard for the next 20 years. But as important a role as all these guys had, makeup artists really didn't get a lot of industry prestige for a very long time. For instance, Tuttle received an honorary Academy Award in 1965. And that was the first time the Academy, I think it was the first time. Oh, no, no, no. There was one other Academy that Bud Westmore received in 1938. Um, but they were these 
two random awards. It wasn't a competitive category that came up every year for makeup artistry as it is today. Yeah. And I don't know. I think part of that is that just the actual like technological innovation aspect is so recognized now. The the role that makeup can really play in making or breaking a character. And so we're going to get more into uh, those technological developments in today's industry when we come right back from a quick break. terms, makeup artistry really is a science as it has had to continually evolve even still today in order to meet the demands of evolving film technology and as we'll discuss in a moment, racist casting. But if we go back to Max Factor for a minute, he essentially ran this cosmetics lab to begin with. He always wore a lab coat and which I know wearing a lab coat doesn't necessarily mean you're a scientist, but I'm just saying he looked the part. Uh, But he took a very scientific approach to trying to perfect how best to approach women's makeup and figure out what exactly they needed to make them look less disgusting. Um, (laughs) But he used, for instance, this horrifying looking beauty micrometer to measure all of the possible ratios of women's facial features and see how it like matched up to, you know, the, the symmetrical ideal. And there was only, I think there's only one beauty micrometer in existence. It was a major flop. It, he did not sell any because these women were having to wear these like metallic cages on their faces that looked like torture devices. Well, yeah. I mean, the way you describe it, Kristen, sounds so like technologically advanced. It sounds so precise. But when you look at a picture of this thing, it looks like something out of a horror movie or out of the frickin Spanish Inquisition. It's like it's a it's a full faced helmet thing with nails, basically. And you put it on your face, put an eye out. Factor. Max Factor. What are you doing? What were you thinking? But for another example, a, a less terrifying example of him innovating to catch up with film technology Color presented a new set of challenges and a number of actors, especially A-list actors, were nervous of how being on color film might amplify their facial flaws. Because in a lot of ways, black and white film is, is very forgiving, especially if you, you know, have <laughs> some good grease paint. Uh, I was going to say amplify their flaws as opposed to the literal food they were wearing on their faces before. Well, by this point, once we get to like the late 1930s, like black yeah. and white film <laughs> had improved. Um, but with color, Factor had a new challenge of creating, you know, less obvious makeup that would look good on screen. So in 1939, he debuted his natural looking blendable pancake foundation. That was a revolution because it was something that would be used not only by actors on screen, but also could easily be sold to women off screen. So you have all of these pancake advertisements at the time with, for instance, Judy Garland's face saying, ladies, don't you want to look like Judy, Judy, Judy? Which is such a departure from before when it was like only prostitutes or actresses who we associate with prostitutes anyway are going to wear makeup, you harlots. Now it's being sold to the masses. But you also see that throwback too 
to Edwardian era of, of it being maybe a little more acceptable as well because it is less obvious. Although, yeah, people aren't, people are no longer like applying like fluffernutter to their faces. It's like, oh, we can look, we can wear makeup but look natural. Is it bad that that just immediately triggered my sweet tooth? Oh, well, I guess it's not fluffernutter. Fluffernutter is the sandwich when you mix the marshmallow fluff and peanut butter. So I, I should have said, you're no, ladies are no longer carrying around a tub of marshmallow fluff to apply to themselves. All I'm thinking about is fluff or nutter now, Caroline. Mm, <laughs> my college roommate used to eat those all the time. I don't know how she didn't. <laughs> but then, but the innovation didn't stop with pancake, obviously. I mean, you have Technicolor coming along and all of the intense lighting that it required demanded new kinds of makeup. And then, of course, Technicolor goes away. And so you have new kinds of makeup that are needed. So it's a continual science. Like people who try to poo-poo makeup artistry is just like, oh, it's just putting on makeup. No big deal. No, it is a big deal. Well, yeah, especially for these early pioneers who had to keep up with things as they changed minute by minute. Well, yeah. And there is, of course, you know, the... The innovation needed to figure out how to make white actors look not white so that they could, oh God, I'm talking about yellow face and brown face and red face. That's an aspect of makeup artistry history that I didn't really think about at first. Like, oh wait, no, they're also innovating to um, portray racist caricatures. Right. Of course, they back then they would not have argued that those are racist caricatures. They were hiring white actors to play people of color so that they would be more palatable to basically white audiences. And the only roles that actual people of color, whether you're black, Asian, whatever, would be those very, very racist uh, stereotypical portrayals. Well, and in, you know, uh, movie magazines at the time, like Photoplay, etc., those kinds of quote unquote transformations of the white actor into, say, an Asian character would have been documented and uh, profiled as this amazing thing that you have to see. Isn't this so incredible? Look, she doesn't look quite as American anymore. What movie magic? So <laughs> there are so many examples of this happening, especially in early Hollywood, but mm, even even uncomfortably recent. Um, and, and Max Factor's airbrush breakthrough was especially helpful for this. But you also had innovations of using things like facial prosthetics, elastics and adhesives to maybe pull back foreheads and eyelids to alter facial structures. Meanwhile, there are actual actors of color out there who are like, no, you're not going to you're not going to hire me for. the. Oh, OK, cool. You're just going to like racist, be racist and pull your eyes back. Awesome. Great. Thanks, guys. For instance, in 1915's Madame Butterfly, Mary Pickford played Chocho San, and she was sort of the one who was at the forefront of this yellow face Hollywood trend. And I mentioned Rudolph Valentino just a minute ago. Uh, in 1921, the quote unquote Latin lover starred in The Shake, and his makeup folks had to figure out how to toe the line between Arab face, which was acceptable for audiences at the time, and blackface, which by 1921, outright blackface in that kind of role would not have been as as okay. So their solution was to paint his hands brown so that you could see the contrast whenever he would 
gently caress his white female co-star's face. So, I mean, just just thinking about that kind of strategizing is a little bit of a mind bender. And then in 1935, we have an incident that we talked about in our Asian fetish episode where Anna Mae Wong, who was sensational, was passed over by Louise Rayner to play Olan in The Good Earth. And Rayner won an Oscar for this role. This woman, she was, you know, made up to look Asian and it was considered, I mean, it, it wasn't considered. It was a huge sensation at the time. And Anna Mae Wong was all offered another role in the film and she just turned it down because she was done with the whole thing. Well, yeah. And I mean, this whole, the whole yellow face painting white people as Asian people thing was such a big business in Hollywood for, for Hollywood makeup artists. Cause you've also got in 1944, Catherine Hepburn as Chinese woman Jade Tan and the Dragon Seed. In 1962, Shirley MacLaine's My Geisha. It has a plot that actively revolves around a whole yellow face ruse. And in 1965, William J. Tuttle, who we mentioned earlier, received that honorary Oscar for his work transforming actor Tony Randall in the movie The Seven Faces of Dr. Lau, in which uh, Randall plays sort of an ambiguously Asian medicine man. Yeah, that's the Dr. Lau. One of the seven faces is that Dr. Lau. And going back briefly, though, to Catherine Hepburn and Dragon Seed, which I'd never heard of before. Um, there was a blog post I was reading about it over at turnerclassicmovies.com, and it was saying how through a contemporary lens, it's a little bit conflicting because the plot itself and the character of Jade Tan that she portrays is was ahead of its time in some ways that it, it definitely has like feminist undercurrents running through it. And we know as well that Catherine Hepburn herself was very much a feminist, but all of that is kind of erased by the discomfort that, oh, she's she's dressed up as a Chinese woman. But even more recently, this made me think about the hue and cry over Zoe Saldana being given a prosthetic nose and having her skin tone darkened in order to star in that highly controversial Nina Simone biopic. So from this less rosy angle, this is another impact, though, of makeup artistry, where it's like, okay, makeup artistry is, is so not just about makeup. It's about beauty norms and film technology and even reflecting our race relations and outright racism at the time. Yeah. And so when we do take into consideration how these early makeup artist jobs were so multifaceted in terms of incorporating both, yes, art, but also science and technology, and they were professionalized, it's really no surprise, like we said, that this is a predominantly male industry from the early era. Yeah. And if we even transition from more of the the beauty makeup artistry that we would typically think of into more special effects makeup... I mean, kind of less surprisingly, it's still all dudes across the board. And just as a heads up, I mean, if you're a special effects makeup artist, you are part modeler, sculptor, painter, chemist, beautician. I mean, this, again, is kind of a I mean, it's a STEM type job as well. And if we look at who the legends are in special effects makeup again, it's all dudes. And it's just like, it's so funny to me, like reading all of this, because we stereotypically think of, of girls, little girls being the one who like 
dress up, play dress up and put on makeup and all this, but clearly you have all these boys who are dreaming about it as well. Although, when it comes to special effects makeup, this is when we get into the grotesque ghouls and goblins and monsters. Um, but one of the first guys who really made a name for himself was Lon Chaney, man of a thousand faces, who is a silent film star during the era when, like, you come to set with your makeup already on. And he did all of his own special effects makeup and was kind of obsessive about it. And he once said that as a man's face reveals much that is in his mind and heart, I attempt to show this by the makeup that I use. Mm. Can you imagine uh, like a leading dude film star saying that today, like Bradley Cooper (laughs) talking about how his makeup communicates who he is? I wonder how all of his like perfectly quaffed hair swoops communicate who he is. Well, you know what? I got to give it to BC. He was he was a very stagey guy. He has a very stage heavy background and um you know, he doesn't seem too gender hung up. Okay, now I'm thinking too much about Bradley Cooper. Hubba hubba. It gets me off on a tangent. We've also got the name Jack Pierce. He's the makeup artist who turned Boris Karloff into Frankenstein's monster with that tall, misshapen head and the screws and this and that. Creepy, creepy. And fun fact about why Frankenstein is green or Frankenstein as Frankenstein. Frankenstein. It's not because Pierce wanted him to be green because he was on black and white film, but because the green would play off to create that particular shade. On the black and white film. So now when you see a Frankenstein, Frankenstein monster costume and it's green, that's why? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, a name that should sound, should sound familiar, Bud Westmore, he of the Westmore makeup dynasty, worked with Chris Mueller and designer Millicent Patrick to make the frog suit for Gilman. Gilman was, ooh, yeah, super creepy looking. Creepy, but also hilarious. Yes. And also sounds like a, like a frat bro's nickname. Gilman. Gilman's here. <laughs> um, and I also want to note that Bud Westmore was a makeup artist for, uh, red facing Rock Hudson in his 1954 starring role as Taza, son of Conchisi, in which he played a Native American. So they just, you know, reddened his skin and gave him some quote unquote native body paint. Oh, good. Um, but then John Chambers is the Oscar-winning special effects artist behind Planet of the Apes. And we have Dick Smith to thank for freaking everyone out by making the little girl in The Exorcist the little girl in The Exorcist. <laughs> and then finally, in 1982, makeup is finally added as a competitive category at the Oscars and Rich Baker wins it for the first time for an American werewolf in Paris. Well, screw an American werewolf in Paris. I want to talk about how Rich Baker was responsible for Michael Jackson's werecat in the Thriller video. I can't even tell you how many times little Caroline, like on a sick day, would watch the making of Thriller video that my parents taped off of TV for me. Watched it over... And over again. This is maybe my new favorite fact about you. Yeah. Oh, my God. Like, I have it seared into my brain, the scene where they're putting the yellow contact lenses into Michael's eye because they were like giant hard contacts. And he's like crying and they've got all the saline solution trickling down his face and everything. But, yeah, watching them apply. and, And, of course, I didn't connect it until just now. 
And so, yeah, in addition to all that, all that contact message, I could just like feel the pain watching who I now know is Rich Baker apply that like wear cat face. And you've got Michael Jackson underneath like layers and layers and layers of makeup and prosthetics. You felt like, oh, my God, how's he even breathing under that? Because they had to do the full cast of his face and he had straws in his nose. And now I'm just narrating the making of Thriller video. I just love imagining you watching it, though, as you're sick. Over and over again. That, for me, was just the the PBS Anne of Green Gables series. (laughs) We're different, you and I, sometimes. (laughs) We have some differences. Um, But even today, Hollywood makeup artistry is still having to catch up to changing industry standards and technology because, hello... HD film demands a whole new kind of makeup. And side note, HD film apparently brings out the ageist jerk in some Hollywood uh, folks, such as cinematographer Bill Rowe, who maybe Bill Rowe is a fine man, but he did tell the Today Show, quote, you watch a basketball game in HD and then you wonder what a close up will look like on a 40 year old woman. Bill Rowe, Bill Rowe, just go take a seat, Bill. Go go to timeout. <laughs> well, no, actors and, uh, and other people in Hollywood are having the same reaction to HD that people did back in the day when we transitioned to color. I mean, everybody's like, oh, my God, you're going to see everything. Yeah. And I personally, and this really doesn't have anything to do so much with makeup artistry, but watching especially television shows in HD and even movies, it's not I don't like it. Really? It looks too real. Like you're too close? Uh-huh. I feel like I'm watching a play. And if I wanted to watch a play, I'd go to a theater. Yeah. I prefer not to do that. I would go see your spring play, Caroline. Aww, thank you. But in addition to the whole HD issue, makeup artists also have to deal with the whole thing of reality TV. So actually being in people's living rooms and, oh, you're a real person, but you've still got to look. Like a glamour puss for the TV camera. A glamour puss. Glamour puss. I mean, yeah, and that is one of the reasons why the Kardashians makeup artist, Joyce Benelli, is considered one of the most influential makeup artists in the world. But I feel like she's in sort of like a different category. But she did talk to Broadly about how when she decided to get into reality, Friends of hers in Hollywood were like, gross. That is, you know, that's some D-level stuff. But now she's the makeup artist of the Kardashians, so she's doing A-OK. Yeah. Or should I say K-OK? Wow, 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 wow. And much like other types of uh, special effects and post-production and visual effects in Hollywood, studios want this stuff cheaper faster, but still somehow better. So you've still got the same outsourcing issues and opting for cheaper CGI instead of those old school special effects makeup, or they're just going to pay less outright. And this is the thing that drove seven-time Oscar winner Rich Baker, he of Michael Jackson thriller video fame, to retire. This made me so sad because he had this like huge warehouse where he would Develop these creatures and all of these masks and models and all of his makeup. Not unlike, I like to think, Max Factor's lab that he developed all of his makeup in. But Baker said, I like to do things right and they wanted cheap and fast. That is not what I want to do. So I just decided it is basically time to get out. No more wear cat faces. Oh, 
I, honestly, Caroline, I think you got to try that next Halloween. Oh, God. I would get way too claustrophobic. I don't like masks. Call Rich Baker. I know. Get him in here. But the thing that I was trying to cobble together in my mind as I'm reading all of this is sort of the the what does it mean in terms of how Hollywood beauty standards, especially what we consider. I mean, it, but it's not just beauty. It's the beauty and grotesquerie as well of how that filters down to us as an audience and as consumers and as people looking out at us in the mirror. And I mean, in some ways, I think that Hollywood makeup artistry in terms of the like Max Factor, you know, painting Greta Garbo's face and like every woman in America trying to mimic the look. I feel like that's a thing of the past, especially with the rise of reality stars and also beauty vloggers, Mm -hmm. um, because Michelle Phan, just to name one name, is probably, you know, more of a household name than even Max Factor. So I don't know. Like, I don't entirely know what to think about this very surprising history of makeup artistry and how even trying to get a snapshot today of what it looks like just for film, it was a little bit tough. I feel like makeup artists still don't get the recognition they deserve. Mm -hmm. Well, also, I mean, it's a different type of recognition because you have Max Factor who was developing all of these products and technologies that eventually inspired women all over the world to look a certain way or try to look a certain way with his products once once those hit the larger market. Now you have all the products at the ready. You can walk into a Sephora with your VIB Rouge card and buy all the makeup in the world. Um, but now you're being inspired by, like you said, beauty vloggers and people who are making their tricks of the trade readily available. Yeah. Although, I mean, like the innovations never stop. I mean, I oh, feel like sure. every week there's some new contouring tip I just can't figure out. Yeah, I'm currently in the middle of trying to figure out what type of makeup primer to switch to. I need to switch to something for sensitive breakout prone skin. Listeners, (laughs) suggestions. Uh, But I'm so hopeful to hear from some makeup artists listening. I mean, this clearly was a a very limited snapshot of the industry. It's really just some early Hollywood history. Um, But hopefully gives you a little a sense of of your heritage. And also, I mean, just for, for me and, and my perspective on it, my appreciation for the impact of makeup artistry has certainly broadened. So listeners, send us your letters. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. Or you can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. With the holidays almost here, you don't even have time to go to the post office and deal with all of that traffic, the parking, carrying all those packages and inevitably dropping them all over yourself. It's going to be packed with everybody mailing those last minute gifts. So do what the pros do and use stamps.com instead. With Stamps.com, you can avoid all that hassle of going to the post office during the busy holiday season. Everything you would do at the post office, you can do right from your desk. Stamps.com lets you buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. It's so easy and convenient. 
And right now, you can sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code STUFF for a special offer. It's a four-week trial with a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in STUFF. That's Stamps.com. Enter STUFF. And now, back to the show. And we've got a couple from our witches Halloween week. I've got one here from Brittany who writes, I was just listening to your witches episode and it reminded me of a moment I had over the weekend. I was dog sitting and somehow ended up watching a marathon of Hallmark Channel's The Good Witch movies. In the end of the first movie, should I say spoiler alert, are you planning on watching a Hallmark Channel original movie and being surprised by the ending? The town's sheriff is defending Catherine Bell's character, the town's quite lovely new resident witch, from the uppity mayor's wife who claims that this herb shop owning woman is going to bring evil to the town. The sheriff actually uses a line saying that she, quote, may not look like us, but that doesn't make her bad. This is a white cisgender man talking to white cisgender people about a white cisgender woman. I actually laughed out loud. Apparently, witches are how Hallmark deals with diversity instead of actually dealing with diversity. Love the podcast and happy Halloween. Brittany, a belated happy Halloween to you. I know it is a long ways away from Halloween, um, but that letter made me laugh out loud as well. Well, I have a letter here from Chelsea. She is one of several people who've written in telling me to get on those books and movies uh, about Harry Potter. So, Chelsea, uh, I can only say that I'm working on it. Um, She says, uh, I've been interested in witches, both fictional and historical, since I could read. As you mentioned in the episode, Hermione Granger is on a lot of witch lists. However, I think because of the content of the episode, because you were looking at films and TV shows, you missed some great points about what makes the witches in the Harry Potter series so appealing. In the early books, Hermione is described as having bushy hair and buck teeth, and while there are a few times she dresses up for special occasions, her focus is on her studies, elf rights, justice, and friendship. She is strong, smart, kind, and hardworking. She never takes the lazy route and is someone Harry admires. Hermione, alongside Luna, McGonagall, Ginny, Molly Weasley, and of course Lily Potter, have been established as strong female characters who stand up for themselves and others. The Harry Potter series is often underestimated as a children's series. However, these were the women I grew up with as my strong female role models. Maybe this is because I've always been a feminist, but always because I noticed straight away that the female characters in the novels have equal parts with the male characters, and there are very few instances of gender divide. While they use magic for everything from domestic chores to protection from evil forces, the female characters in Harry Potter represent the strength and equality that I know I crave in my literature and reality. Maybe it is in part that the series was written by a woman, but I think that the Harry Potter series has some of the best and well-rounded female characters who are great role models for all readers. I know Hermione certainly had an impact on me and also on my young cousins. Chelsea goes on to say, Sorry for the long email. I've only just caught up to recent episodes and wanted to share my thoughts with you and maybe convince Caroline into reading the books, too. So thanks for the encouragement, Chelsea, and thanks for writing in. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is where you can send your letters. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with this one, including our sources, so you can learn more about the history of Hollywood makeup artistry. 
Head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 